Welcome to the Real Triathlon Podcast. I'm your host, Garrick Lowen, here with Nicholas Chase and Jackson Laundry. Welcome back to the Real Triathlon Podcast. We are wrapping up 2020 and moving into the new year with the best of 2020. So we're going to do a quick series with our the best interviews voted by you guys on our Instagram. Today we're starting with Cody Beals. Cody, we did a great interview with him, kind of going in depth with sponsorships and the financial aspects of triathlon. It was one of our most downloaded episodes of 2020. So if you missed it, I hope you guys enjoy it. We got awesome feedback on it. And if you already listened to it back when it was released earlier this year, hopefully you can enjoy it once again. So until next week, guys, peace out. And let's roll into this interview. It's an honor to be on the show. I'm actually a big fan of what you guys are doing, trying to be the voice of Pro Triathlon. And like I said earlier, I've listened to like two and a half whole episodes. So that's pretty much shattered any uh, previous record of me listening to triathlon podcasts. So I'm proud of you guys. Oh, yeah. Yeah, man. We're, we're trying to not talk about the same stuff like how many grams of carbs per hour are you taking, Cody? Uh, we're not, <laughs> not going to dive into that type of stuff. But I think today's you, focus – go ahead. You're not going to ask me about Moltron Blanc and Kona. I've already prepared that whole script that I've run through 400 <laughs> times in podcasts. Well, I think, I think we should focus on the good things about you. I mean, I don't want to focus on what everyone already knows didn't happen. You know, we already know. <laughs> Nick's already know throwing it. shade three minutes into the podcast. No, no. We've, we've all had those shit days, man. And, like, th- I think that's what defines us as, like, pro triathletes is, like, every, we think everyone cares about, like, we just had, like, a, a bad showing. But, like, to us, it's the end of the world. And then, like, everyone still loves you and gives you a credit so it's like it's more fun to make fun of it now so i'm glad we all right. can all laugh about it agreed so i think i think we just mainly today we want to get your your two cents maybe even actually your two loonies uh does that make does that jive better two loonies or something <laughs> well two uh, loonies is worth a well, hundred times two cents so okay well yeah it's, I, I, guess I just i just i just sold some us dollars today for the first time in a while best rate i've ever gotten in my life like a buck 40 so uh, there you go <laughs> it's a good time to be a pro triathlete paid mostly in us dollars yeah i guess that's probably a good thing if you're so, still getting paid yeah so we wanted to <laughs> tap into the expectations versus the reality of a pro triathlete's lifestyle now we've gotten to know you a good amount over the last couple of years through our various interactions uh me personally we had our my most cherished memories in 70.3 Campeche only months ago, but I think I met you, <laughs> met you first time um, back in Guelph when I was training with Jackson. We just did an easy jog together, and I was like, oh, that's Cody Beals. I saw him run a marathon on a treadmill one time. I'm like, that's that guy. Um, so now that I know a lot more about you, there's, uh, there's just I, th- I think that you're, we're, we're all hopefully going to be the OGs of triathlon uh, one day, but I think you've, you've definitely earned your, your keep already. You'll be a name people – talk about especially Canadians are just freaking have to change their pants every time they hear your name Cody Beals, they, they just love you so much. <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm um, hoping I can keep riding that for a little while but uh yeah it's been some time since I've done anything notable I guess all of us in light of uh the hiatus in racing here so I feel like no. a bit of a pretend I feel like a bit of a pretend pro triathlete lately <laughs> but I guess do. we're all in the same boat yeah we all do. Yeah. we're all um, like but oh, yeah man, Swift is my career now <laughs> I have not ridden unlike I just want to say I haven't ridden a minute on Zwift in my life. I just want to put that out there. I don't know how many pros can lay claim to that. Is it because they want to? You want you're waiting for that paycheck? Oh uh, yeah, I'm not gonna. I don't hop on a platform like that for free. That's right, man. <laughs> Cody Beal's method. Yeah. Uh, so that's what we need to talk about: your expectation <laughs> of becoming a pro triathlete, what it takes, what we, what was your approach in this whole thing? And obviously, you're like an entrepreneurial mind, and I can tell. I could tell that a long time ago. So I, I think you've made some awesome decisions, um, both with your career, financially, based on what I know, um, seeing your, your beautiful home that you've put so much blood, sweat, and tears into. I think you've got a lot to offer as far as advice for anyone coming up in the, in the sport. And we just want to kind of talk about that with you, if you don't mind. That's good. So, so what basically made you feel like you're starting to make it? And like, let's start there. So I think coming into the sport, I was kind of operating to the assumption that you, you didn't make a living at this. Like I was in, in disbelief that someone could make a living 
you know, running around in spandex basically. And uh, <laughs> I, I had no appreciation for the business side and sponsor side of the sport, which is growing to become, you know, a bigger, a bigger drain on my time and energy than the training and racing most of the year. Uh, so I guess the first sense I had that I was making it is that my salary in triathlon after many years eclipsed what, what I was learning, what I was earning previously in consulting work, which wasn't a whole lot, you know, like we're only talking maybe 60 or 70 grand a year or something like that from the previous consulting work I was Maybe. doing part-time. But yeah, like I, I kind of, when I went to triathlon, I thought I was following my heart. I thought I was, I was, there was a clear fork in the road and I wasn't choosing to pursue wealth and I was going to be poor the rest of my life, but do something I loved. Um, and then gradually as the financial side of the sport came together for me, I was kind of like, oh wow, I can do something I love and I can actually make some half decent money at it. I think a lot of people though have the opposite misconception where they think they hear professional athlete and they assume that you're absolutely just raking it in. You know, we think of like, big three sports players, NBA, NFL, and baseball and stuff. And that's kind of the standard people think of when they think of professional athletes or even golf and tennis. Triathlon is a, is a really weird in-between kind of sport because there are a number of guys and men and women making a middle-class living at it, but not a whole lot getting really wealthy. And as you guys know, a whole ton scraping by. So um, it's unlike other professional sports where, you know, there's tons of people getting wealthy. And the flip side, there are other, many other kind of pseudo-professional sports where you have people who are all necessarily doing something else on the side to make ends meet. Triathlon's a weird in-between kind of sport. Well, do you think pro cyclists are in the same type of boat as we are when it comes to that is coming up in the sport? Yeah, actually, I, I would agree with that. I, I just had an interesting conversation with a friend of mine who's uh, trying to make it as a professional cyclist, uh, Ethan, Ethan, Ethan Sitlington, a uh, local guy, uh, really just a kid. He's like 20. Um, and it seems like from my perspective in cycling, you have more guys making um, getting wealthy by most people's conception of the word. Like let's, let's, if we're going to put a number on that, let's say like hundreds of thousands of dollars a year or something. Um, but perhaps you have even more people who aren't really getting by at all in cycling. That's yeah. a little bit more stratified perhaps. That makes sense. So there's more sponsorship. There's more viewership. There's just a longer length. I guess it's just that career in, in cycling has been around for so much longer than triathlon. So I guess that's notable. And it operates on a really different model. Like yeah. most cyclists are not, are not kind of free agents. Like they're, they're under a team. That's, that's my understanding under a, a unified yes. banner of sponsors. Triathlon, that's kind of the exception, not the norm. And I know Nick, you have your, your history with PWAG, that team. Um, but, and I've had some teams approach me over the past few years, but I've never really had a compelling offer. And what, what kind of drew me to triathlon is that you have these, these people who have to be good athletes. So there's the whole training and racing side of it. But what I didn't appreciate coming into the sport and what I think a lot of people don't appreciate is you necessarily have to have a bit of an entrepreneurial bent in order to make it as a pro triathlete, especially in long course triathlon, where by and large, there isn't really government funding available. There's not really carding and stuff. The ITU side of the sport is a little bit different. Um, but in long course, we have to put ourselves out there. Most of us are typically, you know, managing our own sponsors or working closely with an agent to do that. And um, it's, a, it's an essential part of the sport if you want to make a living at it, because very, very few athletes are, uh, making a living from prize money alone. Like looking at my last couple seasons, I think it's broken down on average at least 60, 40, if not even 80, 20 this year in terms of um, sponsorship and prize money. So prize money is kind of just a tiny fraction of what I make compared to sponsorship. That's an interesting point about, uh, you know, having to be a bit of an entrepreneur to make it. It's, uh, it's quite a, I guess that goes kind of back into the topic of, expectation versus reality where I think a lot of people think, Oh, you're a pro triathlete. You train, you race, you recover, you take naps, your life's pretty chill and you have nothing to worry about, but it's actually a lot more stressful than that in terms of every single day, almost you're, when you're training and when you're getting ready for whatever it is you're doing, you're thinking, Oh, you know, I have this commitment for this sponsor. That's my next thing on the list. Is that going to be this workout? Do I need to bring my camera? Do I need to bring my GoPro? how am I going to post it? Am I going to put on my story? Am I going to put on my, like, it takes just as much time as the training sometimes. It's, it's crazy. Oh, it, it, it takes more time. And I would say over the last couple of years, my, my career has gotten a little bit out of balance where um, maybe I need to reprioritize because I'm spending often four plus hours at my, at my desk kind of getting administrative and sponsorship work done before I even start training. So I typically wake up and then do that. And then I'll start training until the early afternoon. And sometimes I finish training in the evening. So um, it's, it truly is an essential part of the job. And that's where the greatest financial rewards are too. Um, so I, I kind of have mixed feelings about it. Like I, I, I'm tremendously grateful to work with the sponsors that I have. And it's uh, in a difficult financial situation like this year where we're not earning bonuses and prize money. I'm not really financially stressed because I've got base salaries I can rely on. So that's amazing. That said though, 
you know, I, I wasn't drawn to this sport initially to be a business person. So I kind of see, and having talked to some other professional triathletes, I see a bit of a decision that a lot of pros are faced with once they've had some success in their career. And that decision is, do they want to keep being the best possible athlete they can be? Or do they want to crush it as a business person? And those two things aren't mutually exclusive. But you better believe that if you're trying to go, you know, balls to the walls and Instagram influencer and pull in 100K a year and that, those kinds of promotional deals and endorsements, that's going to be cutting into your ability to be the best athlete you can be through training and recovering and focusing on fundamentals. So, you know, my, my career has tipped in and out of balance, I think, where there have been times where I'm too, too much in on the sponsorship side and taking on too much there, um, you know, too much, too much media and stuff like that as well, um, and at the expense of training and racing. Uh, but it's, it really is truly an essential part of the job. And Jackson, touching on what you were saying, I think a lot of people do have a really idyllic, romanticized view of what triathlon actually is. And the reality is far, far less glamorous. Like I, I tell people um, very seriously that my, my career is about managing fatigue, basically. Basically, you know, It's not about people see you jet-setting around the world and uh, hanging out in beautiful places and racing, and they see when you're on podiums and stuff. The reality is so, is so much less glamorous. Um, but it's actually ironically what drew, what drew me to it in the first place i really really like that that lifestyle that daily grind and i know you guys are in the same boat too i think you have to like that to have any kind of longevity in the sport yeah i agree completely and i found I, i've had a privileged career when it comes to who i've been able to train around i've been able to train around people who've been you know world champions um within our sport and i could say that it's it's been a change of regime because back then when they were just able to win and earn a paycheck and, and not have to do much besides win for their sponsors, they weren't doing social media. And now like they can't be, it's just like such an exponential effort for them to learn how to post and market themselves. So this new wave of triathletes, we have to take advantage of social media as an outlet and we, and that's sponsors are absolutely demanding it. And I've seen in the past athletes who are really well known and, and have done well they're, they're going to get canned because they weren't upholding their end of the bargain. So I think that's like probably the biggest thing that we have to do is our name, your name, Cody Beals, it represents something to people. And that's really what you're selling. You're selling that aspect of you within sports. So you've done really well at that. Oh, thanks, Nick. I, I, I joke, you too, actually. I really, I really admire your, uh, your style on social media as well. I, I joke with like rookie pros I talk with really only half joke that you basically need a major in athletics and a minor in digital marketing these days to hack it as a professional triathlete. That's just the reality of it. It's just an essential piece of the job now. And I I hear older pros, like you were referring to Nick Lament, the good old days when you could just be an athlete. And, uh, you know, I feel that, but if anyone's listening, who's thinking about becoming a professional athlete, if you don't want to do the social media side of it and the marketing side and, you know, meeting sponsors and, and do that whole part of it, then you better plan on being really, really damn good because almost no one can can hack it on prize money alone. <laughs> yeah, I think another thing is like, like you mentioned, um, people come to a point in their career where they have to decide kind of, you know, do I be the best athlete I can be or do I make the most money I can? And something that I think we see is some some pros and I think, you know, maybe the ones who get it, bang on and do it i guess the way i would think of doing it is they kind of delay a little bit of that uh income to later in their career so they might really push push the years between you know say 28 and 34 35 years of age and that's at that point most people have accomplished the their best results and then they kind of say okay now i'm going to maintain the best i can still compete at a high level and i'm going to go all in on sponsors just develop a huge brand for myself try to make, you know, a good career here. And maybe I can do that from 35 to 40 plus. We see lots of guys and women racing 40 plus now. And maybe the results aren't quite as good as when they're in their early 30s, but they're this huge name that have so many accomplishments throughout their career. And they're probably getting by with a little bit less training and kind of doing the business side of it more. Do you think that's something we see? Or do you think people are just kind of picking it at random times? When are they going to cash in? Absolutely. You've struck on a really interesting effect that I've noticed, and that's that there's this significant lag between results and sort of establishing yourself on the international stage and the sponsorship that accompanies that. So for me personally, like it took, it took, uh, I'm going to say probably three years after my first win at Eagle Man in, oh, was it 2016 or something? And basically three years of consistent wins and podiums every season 
before I started to get contracts that were, let's say a, a benchmark was getting enough base salaries to pay all my basic living expenses without having to even set foot on the race course. That was a, a pretty solid benchmark, but it took a long time. So it's not enough just to explode onto the scene and do something spectacular for a year or even two or perhaps even three. You need kind of sustained year over year demonstration that you are a consistent podium threat and you're going to be around uh, before the, re the sponsorship follows. And I would add like, it isn't just all about results. I often hear like this false dichotomy where people argue on one side or the other. There's this camp that says sponsorship is 100% all about results. And now in this day and age, they say, no, no, some people would argue the opposite, that it's all about your other assets. In my experience, like sponsorship is what gets your or, um, results or what get your foot in the door with sponsorship. So certain contracts weren't even available to me before I won my first 7.3 or my first Ironman. However, I would say it's other attributes that actually help close those deals. So it's, it's not enough just to be really good on the race course unless you're literally, um, you know, of the very highest caliber, like top 10 in the world. Worlds. Yeah. yeah. That makes yeah. perfect sense. I mean, we see it, we see it now. I mean, some of the athletes who are still like some of the most well-known names in our sport, they're not as dominant in the sport anymore, but everyone knows their name. Everyone knows the Rennie, the T.O., the Heather Jackson, um, you know, the Andy Potts. Not, yeah. Andy Potts. Not that they're still not, doing incredibly well but their social media their their presence within the sport and their personality that's really what defines i think the sport and i've even had thoughts on this too as someone who's always trying to excel on the business side is like how do i make myself a name that people just associate with whatever i want it to be like that's why i was like i'm gonna put a lightning bolt in the side of my head for <laughs> for a whole year every time i get a haircut and see if like that you know, that picks up, or, you know, something stupid like that, or a lot of dudes do the mustache, or I don't know, I was trying to like, just distinguish myself somehow um, within the market, because honestly, that's like, you, to your point, Cody, that helps get contracts as well, you know, not just your results. And yeah, I've it's, seen, br it's branding, like what, what's yeah. going to set you apart from everyone else? Because like guys like me who won, what is it? Six, 70.3s, three Ironmans. I won't say they're a dime a dozen, but there's at least 20 other guys in the world with that resume or better right now, probably more yeah, than that. Probably 20 are still actively racing. So yes, the same money. exactly. So you, you need other things besides results to differentiate yourself. And I remember I like, I absolutely cringed the first time I heard about like, you know, branding yourself. I'm like, what kind of bullshit is this? Like, I'm not a fortune 500 company. I'm just an athlete, but <laughs> no, it's, a, it's <laughs> yeah. really, it's like an essential part of, of the job. And yeah, those, those pros who've really invested in developing their brand and their resume and everything like that. I think they've earned that back half their career of a pretty cushy existence. That's the closest yeah. thing you're going to get to job security. And you've, they fought tooth and nail to get that. Um, so I have no disrespect for pros who choose to kind of just ride out the last bit of their career. Even if, even if they're half-assing it on the race course, you better believe that at the front end of their career, they toiled and struggled for many years at, you know, minimum wage or less to earn that, that cushy existence at the back end of their career. And they totally deserve it. So, uh, yeah, I'm glad to see a bunch of legends still out there racing, even if they are perhaps over their prime. Yeah, how long ago was it when you were eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for your whole? <laughs> I he never I was. Saw something. I, no, see, I something saw. I saw a post, and Cody was like, he was calculating how little he spent on like a trip or something. I might have been to Eagle Man. I don't. I don't know. But it was like, <laughs> yeah, how cheap to... you could be. Early in my career, so I've always like obsessively tracked finances and stuff like that. And early in my career, I took it as like a challenge to see how low I could get my expenses every single year. And that nice. led to some really, really interesting experiences traveling. Like I've just learned the, you know, the, the sub $30 and like the bottom of the barrel hotel rooms, you just, you just don't do it. You know, no, <laughs> yeah. it doesn't matter what one country you're in, like they're universally atrocious. Just don't do yeah. it. I think that rating nine out of 10 is, I think the amount I'm, the amount I'm willing to pay to avoid a red eye flight too is, is has gone up like I think it goes up about a hundred bucks a year. So seven years in my pro triathlon <laughs> career, I will almost pay a thousand dollars to avoid a red eye flight. Jackson and I argue over this. Like you, Jackson, I think like two years ago when we were talking about travel and stuff, you were kind of where I was at earlier in my career. You're like, oh wow, I can save fifty bucks by like traveling all night back from you know South America or something. Done. That sounds awesome. <laughs> but I think you're you're coming over Terrible to my idea. side, you're becoming Terrible a cantankerous idea. old man, and yeah, it's not worth it. <laughs> yeah, you were. I think one of your biggest branding moments was when you first released your blog of your finances and your triathlon finances. And that really put you on the map, at least locally. And I know it did grow kind of internationally as well. And people are just amazed to see that and how triathletes budget, even though 
I think when you did publish that, you're still, what were you, I think you're 20 or $30,000 in Oh, in less than that. Income? But you, you're, that your you're number one, your number one, if I recall correctly, was like uh, in the range of 12 grand income and revenue, revenue and expenses rather. So like pretty much break even oh, level. Yeah. yeah. And then you, I think you actually graphed it from now until since then, don't you? I think you yep. took a step back, but if someone's interested, we'll put in the link below to your blog if it's still up there and you can actually take a look at Cody's finances, go all the way back and see that it's really interesting. And I know I got a good kick out of it because it's a life I'm living right now. And you were also working at the time. So could you kind of comment way back in the day before you got that kind of talking about that, that front half, that, that fighting tooth or nail, like you were saying. Yeah. So, um, I, I was working consulting work at the time and that was pretty good because I could, I could easily, easily reduce those hours because it was pretty flexible as triathlon started to, uh, to ramp up. So yeah, the first season was just barely break even, um, definitely not paying any of my living expenses. And then I was able to grow it very consistently year over year. And actually last year was the first year where I saw a decline in revenue for the first time. So I, I won five races in, in, uh, 2018, finished up the year with a, on a four race winning streak, won my first two Ironmans, um, made, I think 130 K Canadian that year. I've always been really transparent about all that. Um, and so it was a banner year. And then the next year I had on, on paper, a much less impressive season in terms of results, but I made almost as much, almost as much money. And the only reason I didn't publish that budget is because it, uh, was more or less, I pretty much I said everything I was going to say that the year before I might revisit that, at that, um, budget post series this year, do a quarantine edition or a COVID edition, because it's been quite a shakeup in our, our status quo here. Um, but yeah, it's been, it's been a real challenge. Like early on, I kind of set some thresholds for, for what I was aiming for. And like when I was evaluating a possible sponsor contract early on, it was kind of more just about business development. So my first couple of years, I took product only contracts that didn't pay me a dime because I would try and look, identify companies where I saw significant growth potential. So I wouldn't waste my time with a product only deal unless it was going to be something that would develop into something greater. And, you know, by year two or three, I was starting to evaluate deals based on a little bit of money coming in. So like, you know, I think a good calculation, a lot of professional athletes and uh, um, even elite amateurs who are getting some sponsorship type deals should do is look at how many hours you anticipate putting into a contract to fulfill the requirements and with a compensation and, and just crunch the numbers and figure out your hourly rate. And uh, like early on for me, if I could make minimum wage, that was okay. You know, that was kind of the, the bare minimum standard as the years have gone by. Like now I'm evaluating contracts I tend to value my time like at a minimum 50 bucks an hour, usually more like a hundred dollars plus depending on, you know, what the ask is exactly. And if it's not really hitting that threshold, um, it's just not worth it to me. I think a lot of people these days, I'm kind of shocked and maybe even a little disgusted by what some athletes are willing to do for just a bit of free product. You mean posting you know, some 20 times a month for a 15% discount <laughs> isn't a good deal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, That's like you, sponsorship, you, man. <laughs> Yeah, what, what people are willing to call a sponsorship. Like I'm I'm not here to judge what other people want to do with their free time. And to some people this is a this is a glorified hobby and that's fine. But to those of us who are doing this full time, it sort of undermines the entire value of the industry when you have people who are willing to work essentially for free. Um, there's maybe a parallel in uh among musicians. So I did a few paid gigs. I played piano when I was younger. My dad was a semi professional guitar player at times. And, uh, hey, what, what is semi-professional guitar playing? Well, like he was that? an e engineer by training, but also got some, you know, decent paid gigs and stuff playing guitar. Okay. I got it. Yeah. Um, and in, in the world of musicians, it's, it's really frowned upon to take gigs for free outside of charity gigs in a lot of cases, because um, it, just, it just cheapens the value of the entire industry if people are willing to do stuff for free. So I would, I would lay the same challenge to professional triathletes. Like, know your value and don't accept less than what you're worth. Um, and I think... Part of what makes it inefficient, like a basic tenet of economics, is that when there's a lack of tr transparency in pricing, um, people, the markets just don't operate, they don't operate efficiently. So in, in triathlon, no one really knows what anyone else is getting paid. Everyone's contracts are a secret. And so it's easy for um, companies who are kind of bad actors to exploit athletes and stuff. And I've been able to, I've become more astute at identifying these companies. And I've, I've fortunately had very few missteps with sponsorship. Like I'm I really stand by almost every single one of the companies I've worked with over the course of my career. And most of them are the same companies I was working with at the beginning of my career. So I think I have three or four sponsors who are going on uh, over five years now with me and that's they've incredible. been phenomenal companies. Yeah, it's great. Like I, it's, I think that's also, that touches on another point. Like 
I really would res be resistant to changing sponsors. I think it really, really diminishes an athlete's value if the perception is that they're willing to flip sponsors every year to go to the highest bidder. Yeah. So I've, I've could literally cite examples where I've turned down a bigger offer in terms of the compensation, because I think that would be offset by my brand. Like we were talking about earlier, taking a hit. If I, I was seen that just to be, you know, flipping sponsors because someone was willing to pay more money. Yeah. And it doesn't, yeah, I think a lot of people appreciate you, that. If you're trying to sell a product to people, or you're trying to market a product. It doesn't look good on you. If you're having this one product and you're saying, Oh my God, this cured my stomach issue. And it was great. But then the next month you're like, Oh no, this cured my stomach issue. And, and this is something <laughs> we, we see among triathletes, but we oh, also totally. see, we also see it among like social media influencers, which is hilarious. Like, I don't and know how many worse. Yeah. Like, Oh, those are so <laughs> I've, I've lost, I've lost some respect for certain pros for the products they've chosen to align with. Um, because I think people underestimate how savvy social media audience audiences have become. So the kind of really crass overt marketing that would have worked 10 years ago in the dawn of social media just doesn't cut it anymore. Like people are yeah. very discerning consumers of social media. They see right through this bullshit chilling people do and it doesn't work. And like, I'm, I'm not perfect at this. Like some of the, it's really hard to do a sponsored post in an authentic way. Like I try and steer oh, sponsors Lord. away from this approach, but sometimes contracts will stipulate you must post X times per month about this product using these hashtags. And you have to do FTC full disclosure where, you know, you tag it sponsored and make sure it's all above board. That's a whole yeah. other rant that could go on. People need to be doing that. That's the law. Um, but yeah, like it's just, uh, it's really challenging to do, um, to, to present that in an authentic organic way. Um, and it's, well, it's something I kind of, I, I kind of have become pretty sensitive to that too, because working with a big coaching company that I've put a lot into to try to help build, um, we've got, upwards of, you know, close to 200 athletes who we, we use to try to get them discounts on products and companies will try to reach out to us for that. But I'm of the same mind. Like, I don't want to be just like shelling things at these guys. Like, Hey, this is going to make you feel this and that. Like I, I see that. And I feel that from the industry all the time. I just got like three emails today from people who are trying to like develop an influencer brand. And it's just like, it's they have to i guess i get it that they have to try to get people to buy into this program that they're building but ultimately when i'm putting my name behind something and a company falls through or doesn't have good ingredients or falls short in the market like i don't want to do that so i think all of us should be more invested in creating a long-term relationship that's more like i tell every company and I, I don't even like calling it sponsorships anymore. I just like calling it a partnership because like part of my job is to work for them as well. Like I don't think that I just get a check in the mail and I just sit on the couch and go, Oh, where's my check? Like I want to make sure they know that I'm going to put my neck up for them. And I think that adds a lot of validity, validity to a pro triathlete's career. When you can be reliable, you can have like a resume of sponsors who maybe you worked for and they can, you know, get called up and be like, Hey, how was it working with Cody? And be like, well, he was, he was a dick. He just basically told me he didn't want to post anything ever. <laughs> it's, it's, it's such a, it's such a small, like incestuous industry. Word gets out pretty quickly. You know, yeah. if, if you're, if you're not a good person to do business with, so your reputation is worth so much more than any short-term gain from a contract, I think. And right. yeah, I want to, I want to revisit that point about um, like compliance with rules around disclosure of sponsorship. It's amazing how flagrantly a lot of people violate that. And that really bothers me. I think like it's, it's literally the law in Canada and the U S and in Europe, I believe as well to what is disclose the law of state directly. Well, I don't want to get into the nitty gritty, but basically you have to disclose sponsored relationships whenever you're doing a sponsored post and it can't be okay. done in a really subtle way. Like it has to be front and center. Like, Hey, I'm, I'm reviewing this product, which I received for free or was compensated to review like that level of really overt disclosure. So anytime I do a story that's, that's sponsored, always consistently in the upper right hand corner I'll, I'll tag ad or sponsored basically i'm trying to i'm trying i've been challenging myself yeah exactly and at first i looked at it, i'm like hashtag sponsored this is obnoxious like are they trying to advertise the factor and influencer no 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 uh, they're, they're just trying to like comply with those new laws which aren't even that I didn't new know anymore it was a law so i think i mean i've done it a few times but i think that's a good point i'm learning something buddy like I'll, yeah it's uh, uh i've had to go through training on that with like several sponsors now um so they're well, the, the thing they're is cracking down on it the sponsors like it's not like sponsors know all these things necessarily or or kind of tell you um by the way you have to make sure to do this like not that it's necessarily their their um responsibility either it's probably lies equally on both but um 
yeah, it's like, it's kind of hard to know, like this industry, we're working for ourselves. There's no set of rules. There's no, and this is something the PTO, I think, is hoping to improve, help improve for us. Going back to what you said earlier, Cody, where nobody knows what the hell a contract's worth. Like, I don't know what, you know, just name random pros bike sponsors paying him who, you know, has similar credentials to me, or they don't know what mine's paying me. Like, and that's in our contracts. So it's something that it's an interesting dilemma. Like, is it, you know, is it fair that our contracts say you can't tell anyone what you're making um, mm-hmm. or is that something that people should know? And what I've seen happens in practice is that you get small groups of pros who are friends banding together and technically violating NDAs or confidentiality agreements to talk about details of their contracts. I've seen um, that. Yeah. That's, that's basically the norm. Um, so that's just kind of what happens. I think the PTO is poised to really play an important role in that. And they've already made some great steps talking about how they can provide legal counsel or have a, have a lawyer on, um, on retainer to help review people's contracts and stuff. Because I've, I've basically had to like learn some contract law on the fly and I, I write and review a lot of my contracts now. Um, and I'm not a lawyer by training, obviously, and I'm sure there's, there's holes and stuff in them and they're not perfect. Uh, but it's been really important to be able to understand what a bogus clause in a contract looks like. And it's tough to review a 25 page contract and pick out the couple sentences that are tipped far too far towards the, uh, the other company's interests, you know? to evaluate what a contract looks like and what a fair contract should look like. Well, so I think, I think the PTO pages, can help there. If it's 15 pages right when you get it, that's usually a red flag immediately. Like, uh, what, this is for uh, <laughs> not a lot of things, uh, but there's 15 pages. <laughs> uh, it, it really varies. Like I've had some 25 page contracts that are entirely fair. Um, all the meat of the contracts and a couple appendices at the end. And it's yeah. all just legal, legal boilerplate that their company insists on having for the first 20 pages. And that's, that can be pretty harmless or it cannot be sometimes. I think the sweet spot's kind of like a, you know, like let's say a four to 10 page contract. I've had one pagers and believe it or not, those aren't always the best because they start off with this, like you, you think it's this real expression of trust. You're just going to have a word of mouth type agreement almost with just a couple of points on a contract. Um, but more often than not, they can be, end up being extremely demanding. They're expecting all these things of you that aren't explicitly written into the contract. So there's a balance to strike for sure, I think. So I have a question for not Cody, but Garrick. So, well, actually, yeah, mostly Garrick, because you've only done a few races, a few pro races uh, on the Ironman side, right? You're coming more from an IT background. And... You well, now well I did seen. race on the Escape Series back in the day and got a pro podium, so let's not forget about that. Of yeah, course. Come on. <laughs> okay. So, out of the th- out of the four of us, you finished the least number of pro races, but you still done a good job of developing yourself in you know getting some contracts that are actually paying you. Um, whether it's a lot, probably not, but you're actually kind of making some money. So, how have you been able to do that? without kind of, Oh, look, I've, I've got an Ironman win or whatever. Yeah. Well, one thing that I did was when I decided ITU is a crock of shit and I'm done with this, (laughs) (laughs) I committed to like Cody said, kind of branding myself, but leaning towards kind of social media. And I took about three years and went just like full bore on building my Instagram. And right now it's, it's kind of receded. I kind of took a step back just when everything happened with my mom and I just didn't want to put the time and effort into it because I had other stuff happening in my life. So it's fallen back a bit, but that's kind of where I've, where I really put a lot of focus in. And now that I can race iron, well, not now, but when I was racing last year, 70.3 and stuff, you know, I was hoping for results. I got a flat tire. I had an okay result, but this year, having that social media, it's allowed me to say no to sponsors. And just because I've gotten a lot, when you're in a position kind of where we are, we've all been where I am right now, you know, no results, nothing. And sponsors want to take advantage of that. And they want to give you these shit deals, like 20% if you post eight times a month. And I, I can say no to that as well. And I'm not super dying for for money or anything because i have a job and it does pay well and i'm able to train around that as well and that's given me a lot of leverage to ask for for more from sponsors and just not get taken advantage and like cody said before you do have to value your time and for me i know what that is and i'm pretty honest with that with sponsors so i've just kind of been blatant and people react very well to 
being confident and knowing your value. Yeah. So, and yeah, I, I agree I, with yeah. those are some great points, Gary. Yeah, you you really punch above your weight with respect to sponsorship. So people should be listening to what you have to say. Um. Yeah, that's one thing I wish I could, like I you know I think I've done a reasonable job of developing myself, and I've I've got some great sponsors now that I'm super happy with. Um, but earlier in my career, I kind of almost was like, I feel like I was desperate, and you know I didn't have one thing that was different about me versus Garrick or Cody was I didn't have like a job that was paying me decently early on in my pro career. I was just doing pro triathlon and losing money left, right, and center. So any sponsorship, I was like, yep, yep. Sounds good. Like I didn't, I can't say like, oh yeah, there's this brand. I wish I didn't work with or that. And I don't, I don't think individually there's any I can think of, but just in all in all, I think, wow, there was a ton of brands not a ton, but probably a few brands that I could have realized at the beginning, this probably isn't going to get me something big in the future that I actually want to do, but I have nothing else. And, and that was a bad position. I put myself in for a little while and something I could have probably improved on or I, yeah, I could say, do it like Garrick, make sure that you have an income and you're not worried if the sponsor doesn't give you 50% off, you can't race. Like that's not good. <laughs> that's not a situation you want to be in. I think that's a really good point, Jack. Like some of the advice I give uh, new pros is that they should try and erase any financial pressure in their lives if they're going to pursue the sport. I think a lot of people go into the sport without a financial plan. Um, and that personally, I don't, I don't train and race well if I'm, if I'm under a lot of stress. And uh, I can imagine financial pressure could add a lot of stress for some people. I think you want to be in a stable position before you're going to pursue training and racing because it's stressful enough as it is without worrying about like how you're going to pay the bills that month. Um, so, so guys, I'm gonna, I want to switch gears real fast. I want to talk about something that we have been very well. I guess all of us, except for Garrett, got to do once this year. But we're missing out on engagement with age group athletes who are at races, racing, sharing the course with us. We're not able to get out there and actually, I guess, like feel like we're pros in real life. We're just pretending. So. Uh, do, what do you think the value is in that going to a race showing up and marketing yourself, you know, being available? Um, Cody, I think you probably have more of this than any of us because you've got a lot of followership and people really look up to, you know, how you, how you carry yourself. So when you go to a race um, and you've got to kind of partition your time stress management wise, um, how do you handle going to a race and still making sure you're, being an ambassador of yourself an ambassador for sport and also showing up ready for a race. How does that affect you? Um, it's a, it's a balance. I'm still not striking quite correctly. And I know we said we weren't going to talk about Kona, but that was one where I really, really screwed it up. Um, earlier we were talking about the value of learning to say no. Garrick talked about knowing when to say no. That's something I really struggled with. Like I'm innately a people pleasing person and uh, that can be a problem. Sometimes I find it really, really hard to say no to people. And lead up to a race like Kona, any race is going to have, there's going to be a lot of requests um, once you've had some wins and stuff and you have a number of sponsors. Uh, but especially a race like Kona, there's just so many, so many potential demands on you. And you have to learn to say no. Talking to other pros after the fact who've been successful there, they're pretty ruthless, you know? Like leading up not just to Kona, but to other races as well, they're pretty ruthless about what they say no to. So, yeah. Like what I, would you I've have said no to. Oh, I don't want to start singling out individual sponsors and stuff, but I think I would, names. I would, I would focus on servicing my own sponsors and be a lot more ruthless about saying no to media. Okay. You know? Yeah. And that I also sense. think, I also think some good planning goes a long way. Like I've, um, before everything went belly up this year, I was, my plan with sponsors was that we were going to front load a lot of the content this year. So I'm like, you know, January through March, I'm yours. April through June, yeah, I can be yours sometimes. Um, the back half of the season, if you want me to be a serious Kona athlete and have some good results this fall as well, you should leave me alone for the most part. <laughs> yeah, so obviously some, obviously some content has to be fresh, um, and that's fine. Another thing I've gotten more efficient with is uh, kind of killing multiple birds with one stone, I guess. So um, this is something an athlete like Lionel's done really well with his YouTube channel. So that's, that's kind of a, a big part of what he does for his sponsors, it looks like, from an outsider's perspective. So rather than doing umpteen shoots, one for each sponsor and answering, you know, a dozen variants of the same interview questions for each sponsor, just kind of create like a universal content pool for them. So spend a bit of money on a shoot and put all that content out to all your sponsors, you know, or give them a recap after a race where it's nice and fresh, get it to them that day. 
uh, with some video assets or some photo assets. They seem to appreciate that and it makes your life a lot easier as well. Um, and then you aren't in a position of having to pick and choose what things you can and can't do with your, your finite time and energy. Great. Yeah. So I, I think that that's, that's perfect. Point. Like, and, and the other thing is like, we train all the time. We're, you know, every single day we've at least got two or three sessions and I've told some of my, some of the old hats who were like, well, I just can't be bothered to do any of this sponsorship crap. I'm like, it takes you literally a couple seconds to ca capture a picture of you tying your shoes or just a quick 10 second video. And then you go home and then you spend another couple minutes when you're on your couch recovering, um, uploading and editing real quick. Like it doesn't have to be a big to do because it's, you're just basically documenting your life and people are interested in that. Like what that's, I guess the whole point of this, like being a pro triathlete, you're setting a standard of how you should carry yourself, how you should race, how you should manage your time. So I think it doesn't have to be super challenging and super hard. And that's where the smart athlete gets into contracts that are going to be mutually beneficial, obviously for years to come, they're going to give you an opportunity to highlight yourselves. And I, like I told so there's a sponsor that Jackson and I both work with actually even Garrick, like I wouldn't work with them unless they were willing to invest and show growth to us. Like it wasn't just about us representing them. They wanted to represent us. And I think that that's, I wish we saw more of that rather than like a strong take on one side or the other. I, I, I'd like it to be more partnership. And that's anyway, a really good point, Nick. Uh, I've some of my best partnerships have been um, where there's a mutual investment in building each other up, you know, it's not just like a one-way flow of content from me to them, or it's not the opposite, which is equally common where they're just messaging you, telling you to repost their posts and their promotions and stuff. Oh yeah. The best sponsors are the ones that have that really worked on building up their athletes. Like that's been very much um, Ventum's approach, Jackson, my bike sponsor. They're, they've been all about that from the get-go. They've invested heavily in building up their athletes. And I think that's, um, you know, it's mutually beneficial for everyone. It's a win-win. Yeah, they, they are a prime example of taking money to make money. I mean, I, it could not be cheap to put themselves in that position where they are right now. And I think moving to Utah and putting everything in Park City was such a great move business-wise, especially since business taxes are great in Utah. Um, you're you know centrally located to do all kinds of shipping. But anyways, yeah, hats off to, to Ventum for doing that. And especially, I know you all are just super pumped to be working with them. Like, isn't that the best thing ever when not only do you like the product because you're using it, but you love the people who are managing you as an athlete. Like I, like I gotta, I guess I'll toot the horn of Rudy project. Like they have one guy who handles all the pro athletes and I don't know, he just makes us feel really good about ourselves and like checks in and says, hi, like that's what jazzes me up about working with the company. Thanks not you just for like, posting thanks you for yeah, what you do thanks right checks in on you yeah that's done a race we were talking about evaluating contracts earlier and that's important to be able to evaluate like the nuts and bolts of a contract but what i should add to that is that basically now like the value of the relationships behind whatever's on the paper that's become increasingly important and that's an intangible yeah. you can't quantify that but i think as you get deeper into the sport and more depth of business you can get a better read on people and what your rapport is going to be and there are some red flags or some good signs right off the get-go in the first conversation, the first contact you have with a potential sponsor, um, because ultimately it's the people you're doing business with. And those relationships count for a lot more, I think, than the details of the contract. Yeah, well said. That's mattered to me more importantly than anything um, in my small you know, careers, just making sure the people are like wholesome, not going to take advantage and want you to like totally rip yourselves a new one and turn into the salesman on Instagram. Like yeah. nobody likes, nobody, I mean, nobody likes posting like that. It just doesn't seem real. And I think the biggest thing to take away for any pro triathlete is like, if you are focused on a sale and you're telling people to buy this thing, there's an opposite effect. Usually people don't want to be told what to buy anymore. They want to see it used. They want good product reviews. They want to be honest. And I've learned that reviewing for a couple of companies is they just want to be told a few facts. They want to know people who are at the top of the game are using it and they want to know that it's not going to fail them within months. So like, yeah, I, I think that's um, one thing that I, I like to tell sponsors is that I'm, I don't consider myself a salesperson. I'm not in mm -hmm. sales. I'm, I'm in marketing and there's exactly. a lot of data that shows, especially for a big ticket item, you need to make contact. Like I think some stats have said seven times on average before someone's willing to buy something like a bike perhaps or a power meter. They need to have seven impressions or give or take of that product before they're ready to pull a trigger. So I see the value of a pro is making that initial contact, showing them what's out there, 
maybe refreshing their memory on that. And then what finally closes the deal might be some directed marketing through that company's email list down the line. The problem is for professional athletes, that's almost impossible to trace back to the professional athlete. Yeah. So a lot of, a lot of companies like to have directly traceable things like affiliate links and like, um, you know, trackable coupon codes. And I have a pretty strict policy of not using those ever. And I, I wouldn't judge other pros to do that. You know, people have a different business model for how they approach the sport. But for me, with very few exceptions, I've entirely stayed away from anything that directly is tracking my ability to sell product, whether it's affiliate links or coupon codes. I don't like to feel like a salesperson aggressively whoring out some coupon on my Instagram, you know? And then it's pressure, I really right? don't like that. It's like, oh man, how many people have used my code? Is it working? Like, do I have to start messaging people? Like sometimes it... Like it depends on the pressure level, I think, because I really like it when it's, Hey, you know, here's for your friends and family. You know, we don't want you posting this all the time. We, uh -huh. you know, that's a, I, I really enjoy that because I like having something when people are like, Hey, do you have a, a code for this? Like, can I get a deal through you? That's great. Um, yep. But if it's like, Hey, uh, you better sell 50 times this month with this code. It's like, Oh man, that's just, for me, the stress level on that, like, I don't want to be dealing with that. And that's a good I, point. I agree. And it's not, a, it's not, it's not capturing the entirety of your value. You know, you almost need to attach, if they are going to use that approach, you almost need to attach a big multiplier to that. Like a few, you might only convert two different sales based on your coupon code, but you could easily have indirectly resulted in another 10 sales or something like that, just by virtue of exposing, exposing the product to the public. And, and I love, the, I, that's I, the toughest thing yeah. for sponsors to get behind, right? Go ahead, Garrick. I love that you said that, Cody, because that's one thing when I talk to sponsors, I wasn't going to say it before, but that's one thing that I explicitly say, like, I will, you. <laughs> I will tell them that like, I would like to be away from this, especially for someone who drives so much content from Instagram and stuff is I want my posts to seem more organic and kind of be more personable as well. But if you're directly, if you're forcing me to put this code on my Instagram, it looks horrible and people hate that. And yeah, then, yeah. yeah. And then I would just, there's sometimes where, where it is unavoidable and perhaps it's, but then I try to go just, just with a link or something, but usually it's not a big ticket item as mm -hmm. well either. Right. Because it's more like the exposure in terms of the marketing that that's going to make that sale and less like the sales pitch. Right. And I find that sometimes data can speak louder than, than words. Like I have a reputation for being really data driven whether or not it's deserved. And uh, sometimes I'll just hit them with some stats on recent sponsored posts. Um, you know, the minority of contracts I have that insist on overtly sponsored content, I can show them like the engagement and reach on a post that was so very obviously sponsored compared to another post Always. that may have featured a product that was a lot more organic and authentic. And it's like easily a factor of 10, you know, yeah. in terms yeah. of the number of likes, the number of comments, etc. So that's, yeah. that's pretty convincing more than just listening to my opinion on it. <laughs> and that's, that's good data to have. I have that. I track all of that. And at the end of every month, I, I send that to every sponsor is all my posts and what engagement I got in every single post and oh, whether or not it people should be taking notes on this, Garrick. That's uh, really, really ahead of the curve. I think like I'll yeah. occasionally do that maybe on an annual basis, but if you're doing that monthly, you are speaking the language of the marketing directors who ultimately hold the purse strings. <laughs> you're giving job, away your secrets here, Garrick. I'm taking notes for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're all That's learning tough. here. So, so yeah, I just I, wanted to, Go ahead, go Nick. Ahead, and then I'll go. I was going to no, say, go we should wrap up the old sponsorship chat. Yeah, yeah, yeah we've been railing on this for a while. <laughs> I, uh, that's what I was about to, to do. I was, I was, I think one of the, uh, one of the other things that is really a misconception with pros is that we always love training. We just can't get enough training. We just wake up every morning and we're like, I can't wait to go train eight hours a day. And uh, some of us, a, a few of us, <laughs> one of us, our name Sam Long in this world, and that is. What we <laughs> But for the rest of us, sometimes it's not like that. Like sometimes you wake up and it's literally like, oh my God, like, why do I have to do this freaking job? Like sometimes it feels like shit. But I mean, obviously we all have that innate desire to, to train and to improve ourselves. But I think that, you know, based on what social media shows people, it's like, oh, 99.9%. .9 I love training, but really it's, I don't know. Like, I think it's like 80, 20. Sometimes there's quite a bit like, Tell me Sometimes if you guys Nick have the same, uh, the same thought process race morning at 3am or 4am. That's the only morning ever. I wish I was normal. Like, I don't know <laughs> yeah. why, like, I don't know what it is, but the ritual of race morning, I wish I could erase all of that. I, I love training. I don't mind gutting it out every day. Like, yeah, sometimes you don't want to. And sometimes you say budget and, and sit on the couch, but man, race morning, 
like I look around at everyone who's watching and cheering. I'm like, I wish I was you today. You know, like I guess there's just some weird pressure niche going on there. But until anyways. the gun goes off, and then everything's yeah, beautiful. Exactly. Once the gun goes off, like it's go. But that that four hour period, I just want to like. I wish I could wake up ten minutes before the race, walk to the line, uh, wipe the stuff out of my eyes, and just hit the gun and go. <laughs> That'd be yeah. cool. Yeah, what's the most dreaded yeah, that's a good so that's what you would that's what you would change if you could change anything um if i could change anything about being a pro it would definitely be having to eat like 14 times a friggin' day like <laughs> oh this is and a first people are problem, gonna Jackson. people are gonna rip on me for this <laughs> yeah they're gonna but the number of hours of extra extra time a week just preparing and eating food it's like it just it just goes out the window it's like i'm not nick i can't make a bowl of water rice in like three seconds <laughs> it takes a while to like make a meal eat it like That's, oh man everything my, i do is fast jack my, my partner james doesn't understand like he'll put all this time into preparing these elaborate meals i like i have a i have a patience limit of like 10 minutes for preparing food that's like a, that's like on a good day it's like, what can I assemble in 30 seconds, which Absolutely. usually is like a bowl of oats or something or some toast or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Breakfast foods are the best all around anytime foods. And I'm so happy for cereal. <laughs> oh yeah, man, man. I could, I could subsist off like the same dozen foods all the time, every single day. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. That's... No, but like to Jackson's point. Yeah. Like training is, is uh, when you say 80, 20, I didn't know what you're talking about. Like 80% miserable, 20% fun. That's no. like, I don't think, I think you were saying the opposite. I'd say yeah. I'm like the opposite of you. So yeah, it's, it's, um, it's largely pretty miserable. Like I'll throw it out there. I train probably half as many hours as Sam long, like not even exaggerating. Like that dude trains 30 to 40 hours a week. I train like 15 to 20 hours a week most of the time. Yeah. Um, and I smash a lot of it and that's probably why it's not that much fun, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's efficient. Yeah. And I don't, I don't always do that. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to reform my ways, but, uh, old habits die hard, especially when they've led to some success, but, um, maybe this I gotta take a page out of Sam Long's book and smell the roses and, uh, put up those 40 hour weeks with 20 hours of zone one. That's, that, isn't just, a, that isn't a snipe at Sam. I don't think he does that. He smashes his 40 hours actually. No, he does. I don't think he even <laughs> uses zone one. I think, yeah. I think his techniques working though a little bit because like, I don't, I've raced with him plenty of times to know, like he's was really fast last year. And like, now I see all this crap he's doing. I'm like, Holy shit. Now he's crushing King of the mountains and attacking and everything. It's like, I, I wonder what the longevity is on all that, but I, st I still take my hat off to him for really doing it. I think my first four years of my career, when I was training with Leslie Patterson, she, she put me through 34, 35 hour weeks, like a couple for months at a time. And I know what it's like, and it's, it does get miserable. Like just the biggest stress is just figuring out what you can eat between sessions that is not going to upset your stomach or make you like want to die <laughs> during the next session. That's the hardest part. So I've actually trained fewer hours almost every year of my pro career as a trend this year, I was going to say would have been the first year where I trained more hours than previous year, but uh, we had all this happen with COVID. So might have to wait until 2021 to finally reverse that trend. And that's just a byproduct of the fact that I was, I was overtraining if you, if you want to buy into that term for the first, uh, really even before I was the pro and the start of my pro career. So it's pretty amazing what you can do with an efficient 15 to 20 hours a week. Um, and I felt like kind of an outlier. Like I, I, I just thought there were so many other pros that seemed to be putting up like these colossal <laughs> weeks. And I've had the, the good fortune now to like look over some pros training peaks and stuff and even consult with a couple of world-class pros and like, there, there are a significant number of guys taking my approach. It's, it's a real misconception that everyone it's in order to be at the highest level, you have to be training, you know, 25 to 40 hours a week or something. What's the TSS on remodeling your house though? I mean, you did all that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that for, for real though. Like that was a, that was a pretty interesting training stimulus. Like I would get up and like, Oh, I'll just do a little bit of painting, like an hour of painting before I start my long ride. And then suddenly it would be like, three o'clock and I, I hadn't started training and then I'd get on the bike at three and then ride until like nine or something. Um, it was tough, like just mentally and physically I'd be drained before I'd even start training. And that was That's the year, so the year I was doing all those renos was 2018 when I won five races. It was like my yeah. best season ever. I don't know what was going on that year. Um, I'm not keen to repeat it. It kind of, I won't say it burnt me out, but I, I definitely uh, dipped pretty deeply into some reserves that year. I like, wasn't sleeping that much. I was, under a lot of stress i was renovating like crazy and i was uh training and racing like an animal so i haven't quite recaptured that whatever that formula was it's paint, paint chip doping 
Yeah, all, the, all that lead paint in my old house. Maybe I was uh, getting some lead, performance yeah. enhancing from Everybody that. Everybody knows lead is good for you, right? But and maybe it was mold or something. That's literally the opposite trend. Like, I just, Montana and I just bought this house and we're in the process of moving. And literally every day I'm like, all right, I'm going to rip through my training so that I can do my moving stuff in the afternoon and in the evening. And like, if I started with, okay, I'm going to go start moving stuff. Oh. And then later in the day I'll train, I would be so stressed out. I would be like, yeah. it would be terrible. So yeah. I'm just, you've got it right, Jackson. I'm, I'm, I've become a notoriously bad procrastinator with training. And can I just say, Jack, you are obnoxiously chill for someone who just bought a house. Like I'm, I'm disgusted. I was so stressed <laughs> when I was in your position a couple of years ago, you were, whatever you're doing, it's, it's obviously working because you seem to be in a good space right now. I think it's just oblivious, obliviousness to the, the world. <laughs> he's still too young to know what he's getting himself into. He's just, uh, right yeah. now it's just Monopoly money and he's signing dotted lines on Monopoly <laughs> contracts. <laughs> 45000 Monopoly dollars? Sure, I'll just do that right now. No, it's true. That's when you're buying a house, like you're dealing with such unfamiliarly large big sums of money that it doesn't really feel real. And you're like, oh, what's 10 grand on this furniture? And oh, who cares? <laughs> it's easy to, like, that's when I saw... So what, what facilitated my pro career over the, the start when I was making like no money was that like my standard of living was just so, so minimalist and so lean. And um, like I wasn't in a relationship then in any way I could pinch pennies, I basically would. And I was saving at an aggressive rate. And I noticed when I bought the house, that's when things started to come unraveled a little bit. Like I'm not exactly a big spender these days. I'm, I'm still driving my little Prius C and stuff. So <laughs> uh, there's no, no Tesla yet, but like I, d I did notice a big creep in my lifestyle and it kind of just goes to show like you're, it's so easy for your lifestyle to creep up to match whatever your income is. And I think yep. that's, that's a trend that I've definitely been trying to resist because then you have a year like this where you have unforeseen circumstances. And uh, yeah, if I bought a place twice as big as this, I'd be up shit Creek right now. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah but at least you'd have a bunch of bikes. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I, I think we've hit a lot of really important topics today. Um, not glamorizing our lifestyles. You know, we're, we're just regular people, but we're also focused on one very important outcome. And that's kind of what drives us, I think. We know we all have different ways of getting there, but we all still want victory. We all still want results. We want to challenge daily. And I think this is a cool episode because we've got, you know, five different person or five, I guess I can't count, four different personalities here who've all had such different approaches to the sport, but we're all making it a career. And I think that's something to be said for, you know, the countries we live in, our opportunities, um, being super fortunate and having most importantly, just being around on all of you, um, just an unwavering work ethic and not letting one hair out of place, break everything that you stand for. Like we're very resilient. You have to be, so I think that's probably the best takeaway from this episode is like, if you want to make it as a pro triathlete, you have to really be proactive and try to think three steps ahead. And no matter what, you're like, you're going to fail a lot. You're going to, you're going to fail probably 20 times more within your first few years than you see any glimpses of hope. And it's, and I've told this to so many people is like, this is a sport that re rewards those who grind it out, put in their time live a good, honest life. And it's just like anything, like you're going to see the light at the end of the tunnel pretty soon. And like, I can just speak from experience. Like finally last year, I started to see some of that happen. So, and, and, and I think um, success breeds success. And once you get, get that taste of it, you just, you're ready to work harder. You're ready to, to think of new approaches and you're not letting anything get in the, in the way. So being around, like, I think that having a little pro collective of, of good people to surround yourself, like we need to talk to each other more. And I hope the PTO does add another level of uh, professional athlete engagement. Even some of the guys who've been doing it for 30 years and they're, they have made millions. Like I hope they're willing to open the doors of how they did it. Things we can learn from them. So oh, yeah. I think we yeah, should Nick, wrap you, you hit on ahead. it. Pa patience, resilience. Those are, I mean, we've, we've, nitpicked over a lot of different ways you can approach marketing and how you're going to break down your day and stuff like that. But the common threads I've seen among every pro triathlete I admire, everyone who's been successful in the sport, resilience, patience, like you yep. said. Yeah. And even those who've had like life-threatening injury where they've been on. Like know, Kelsey, you interviewed awesome interview. Like she's uh, totally admire her. One of the best comebacks in the sport. I agree. Amazing. Yeah. Um, and, and it can be as bad as it could ever be for you, but there's, you know, 
with that mindset, you, you can still do it. So I think we should end on that. Cody, do you have any final thoughts to take us out um, for our listeners? I think we already hit on it. Patience, resilience, play the long game. Okay. Thank and you. Cody's our number one fan of our podcast. He <laughs> listened two and a half times to our podcast, two and a half episodes. So take that. Love time. you guys. I'm so glad you graduated from uh, fans to friends. Oh, thanks, Cody. <laughs> I got ish to do. Flying through the sky in my parachute. Dancing on the couch like I'm Tommy Cruise. On a one-man mission trying to see it through.